Hey, good morning. Uh, I'm Jamie Borchick. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Park, and it is great to have you with us. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be in verses 2 through 16 this morning. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. Uh, if you're visiting with us today, I just want to say welcome to you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back, and that's our gift to you. So we'd love for you to take one with you uh, on your way out today. Now, uh, we have been walking through Paul's letter to the church in Corinth since the fall. And along the way, we've encountered some pretty difficult passages. Uh, there's been some heavy stuff in this letter, right? And uh, I'm really happy to report that today we get a really easy one. Like, this is just a breather. <laughs> yeah, y'all are laughing because you know that is not true. <laughs> this is not true at all. Um, those of you who, uh, who've been around here and read this, like, it, this, is a, this is a hard one. And um, this is actually, in all honesty, this is the hardest passage I've ever studied for a sermon uh, ever before. This is the most difficult prep I've ever had for any sermon I've ever preached. Uh, last Sunday, I was talking to a couple who, who, who was with us uh, standing over here, and they told me they were traveling this week, uh, and I told them, oh, you're going to miss a doozy of a sermon, and they, they, they were like, well, yeah, we're going to be out of town, and do you want to just come with us? And I got to confess, it was a little bit tempting to maybe want to join them. So I uh, just want you to know, this is going to be a difficult sermon today. It's going to be challenging, but this is also going to be a super important sermon today. Because what I'm going to say this morning is something you are unlikely to hear anywhere else except in a church that seeks to faithfully teach what the Bible says. And this is a message that we need to hear. Here at Park, we hold a conviction that God's word is always for our good. Always for our good. When we come to difficult passages of scripture, it can be tempting to avoid them or ignore them. But we believe that God is good. And we believe that he wants good for us as his people. God is the architect of life. He's the one who created all of this. And as the architect, the designer, he knows how it works best. And he wants good things for us. He wants us to line our lives up with what is best, with, what, with his good design. And, uh, and his design is good and it is beautiful. And in his word, what he's given us in a sense is kind of the blueprint for life. This is the manual for how life works best. And that blueprint, this book, this word, it is good and it is beautiful. And so when we come to difficult passages like the one we're in today, we approach them knowing that all of this is good and all of this is beautiful and all of this is for our good. Now, last week, we finished up a section of 1 Corinthians where Paul focused on the issue of idolatry. That was chapters 8 through 10. And today we begin a new section of the letter that's focused on the issue of corporate worship. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul is dealing with all kinds of issues related to what happens when the church comes together and gathers corporately. This was, in a sense, it was first century worship wars. And Paul's given us some instruction for this kind of gathering. And where he begins in our passage today is with the issue of women and men in the church. And these verses are some of the most confusing and contested in the New Testament. Scholars have spilled a lot of ink writing about what Paul wrote here. And this morning, I'm going to do my best to communicate what I believe God is saying through these verses. And my prayer is that what you would hear this morning would not be my words, but would be the words of our God. We're also going to do some text in Q&A at the end of the service. And so you'll see a number up here on the screen. And any questions that you have, I'd invite you to send those in because at the end, a few of us are going to get up here and we'll do our best to try to answer whatever else comes up for you, okay? So send those in. Now, I've been hyping this up and uh, now it's time for you to see for yourself. So everybody take a deep breath. 
Okay, you ready? This is the word of God, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a woman will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a woman to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Easy peasy. (laughs) We can just go home. Got it? Okay. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help as we look at this. Father, we do thank you for your word. This is, as we've just seen, a really challenging text. There's a lot of hard stuff in here. And we need your gracious help today to understand what you would say to us through these words. So I ask today that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you'd give us uh, sensitivity, you'd give us patience to, to wrestle with this and to think about it together, and you'd help us to hear the good and beautiful design that you have in this text. Would you help us to see it and hear it today? Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me start by highlighting some of the reasons why this text is so difficult. First, there's a question about how to translate some key Greek words. In verse 3 in particular, you've got man, woman, and head. And the Greek word for each of those can be translated in a few different ways. So how should we understand them? What does Paul mean as he uses those three words? Second, Paul talks here about head coverings of some sort. What are they? Is it a shawl? Is it a veil like Muslim women wear in much of the world today? Is it a hood like you might put on at Hogwarts? Is it a hairstyle of some sort? Third, whatever the head coverings are, what did they communicate? And why is Paul concerned about it? Like, why do head coverings matter? What's the significance of them? There's something more than fashion going on, but what exactly is it? And fourth, even after we figure out all of that, there's the question of what it means for us today. Like, is it sinful for a dude to have long hair? I see a lot of women out here who aren't wearing any kind of hats or veils or shawls or anything. Like, do y'all need to leave right now? Do you need to get out of here? Like, how does all of this apply to what Paul is saying here to us? And then finally, there's a major issue outside of this text that makes all of these issues inside this text even more complicated. And that's our own current cultural context. We live in a cultural moment that is deeply confused and conflicted around all kinds of issues related to gender and sexuality. So what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What's the difference between men and women? Is there any difference? 
are male, female, even meaningful categories anymore. So for all of these reasons, this is a difficult text. And I'm going to do my best this morning to help us understand it. So what's going on in this passage? What's happening here? Well, start with me in verse 2. Paul begins in verse 2 with a commendation for the church in Corinth. Despite all the many problems in this church that we've looked at over the last six months, they are in fact doing a few things right. When they gather together, their gatherings line up with the general instructions that Paul passed on to them when he started the church. So, so far, so good. Verse 2, doing well. But that commendation, it lasts a grand total of one verse. Because in verse 3, Paul gets into a clarification. They're doing some things right, but they still need further instruction. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, there are three key words in verse 3. And uh, verse 3, verse 3 is the key verse in this whole passage. If we get verse 3 right, if we understand these key words right, it unlocks the rest of this text and we can better understand what's happening in the rest of it. So verse 3 is the key. We're going to spend a bit of time here to try to get verse 3 right. So three key words in verse 3. The first two words in the Greek are the words aner and gune, and both have to do with gender. Aner can be taken to mean man or husband based on the context. And uh, gune, which is where we get our word gynecology, gune, that's the root there, it's, it can mean either woman or wife depending on the context. And that's why some of your translations might read a little differently here. Like some of them may say the head of wife is her husband in that middle phrase, or it might so the head of a wife is her husband, or it could say the head of woman is man. And both of those options are possible linguistically. However, all throughout this passage, Paul uses aner and gune to refer to men and women generally. And in this passage, Paul never once mentions explicitly the idea of marriage. Marriage is not present here, nor is he talking about marriage anywhere else in this kind of section of the letter. So in light of those considerations, I think the best way to understand these terms throughout the passage is as man and woman, not as husband and wife. So Paul's talking about man, woman here all the way through. And that middle phrase then is best translated, the head of woman is man. The head of woman is man. Now, we'll get to what that means in a minute, but that's how I'm going to preach it this morning. Now, that leaves us with the third key word, which is kafale, kafale. And kafale is generally translated head. And what's clear here is that Paul's saying that everyone has a head of some sort. But what does kafale mean? Well, kafale shows up nine times in this passage. In some cases, it very clearly refers to your physical head. Like this heavy thing on the top of your body with your skull and your brain inside of it, like this is your kafale. So it can and does mean that. But kafale also has metaphorical meanings. And whole forests have died to make the paper for the volumes of scholarly debate over those metaphorical meanings. Like when you look at the commentaries, there's chapter after chapter on kafale. There's, there's a lot written on this stuff. And we don't have space to do a deep dive on this today, but I want to summarize the, the debate for you. There are two major options for how to understand kafale. In ancient Greek literature, kafale usually means authority. Like the way you might use head to describe a department head in your office or a head coach of a sports team. So it usually carries that meaning of authority. But it can also mean the idea of source, like the place from which something comes. Kind of like we would say like the headwaters of a river. So, So it can mean authority or it can mean source. And so which is it here? 
Well, if you look at our text in verse 10, in verse 10 you'll see Paul uses the actual word authority. So it's clear that he at least has that notion of authority in mind as he's talking in this passage. However, Paul also references the Genesis story of creation throughout this passage. And doing so, he refers to Adam as the source for Eve. In verse 8, he says, woman was made from man. So when you look at the whole of this passage, it seems like Paul, throughout it, kind of has both of those ideas in mind. Like Adam was the original source for Eve, and at the same time, that original order of Adam and then Eve, that order has implications for how men and women are to relate even now. So in verse 3, Paul's saying that everyone has a head. The head of man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. And in that, Paul is laying out for us this kind of flow of authority that runs from God to Christ to the man to the woman. And that's a flow of authority that God put in place at the very beginning of creation as part of his good and beautiful design. Now, the theological term for what we're talking about here is headship. Headship. And that's a loaded term that can produce some strong reactions. Like some of y'all might be feeling some things right now as I've been talking about this, okay? So I want to pull over for a minute, and I want to help us understand this morning what headship is and what headship is not. So what is it? What is headship? Well, when it comes to men and women, headship involves the affirmation of two realities at the very same time. The first reality is that of equality. Equality. If you look at the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, which is where Paul grounds his whole argument here, if you look at that story, you'll see that God creates men and women both in his image and in his likeness. And as such, both men and women are endowed with equal value, equal dignity, equal worth, equal significance. One is not more important than the other. One is not lesser than the other. Both are necessary. Both are good. Both are image bearers of the creator himself. That's equality. Then the second reality is distinction. Distinction. As we see in Genesis 2, God made the man first, and then he made the woman like the man, but not the exact same as the man. He made woman to be the man's helper, and there's a distinction put in place in terms of role. And that distinction has implications for how we relate as men and women today. So according to Scripture, we are equal and we are distinct. Equal and distinct. And that pairing of equality and distinction is something we see not just with men and women, but actually within the Godhead itself, within the Trinity. See, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equally God. And yet they are distinct in that they're not the same as one another. They have equal value and divinity, and yet they have distinct roles and responsibilities. And it makes sense then that when God makes people in his image, he makes us likewise with both equality and distinction. And if you read through the whole of the Bible, you'll see that everywhere the equality of both men and women is endorsed. Like all throughout the Bible, the Bible is incredible in terms of ancient literature and the way that it elevates women and puts women on the same level as men. There's nothing else like it in ancient literature. And so that equality is endorsed all the way through. But so too, nowhere in the Bible is that distinction erased. That distinction is maintained throughout. And so the universal testimony of the Bible is both equality and distinction. Equality and distinction. 
Now, that distinction is always present. We're always distinct. But when it comes to the specific areas in which that distinction makes a functional difference, the Bible only speaks explicitly to two of them. One is the church, where we are right now, and the other is the home in the marriage relationship. So you'll see this up here, but I find Bible teacher Claire Smith helpful on this. She writes, it's as if the headship Paul is talking about here is potential headship that becomes actual headship in specific situations and relationships. That is, in the eldership and leadership of the church community and in the marriage relationship. And that's it. Those are the two places where male headship makes a functional difference. The church and the home. And so headship is the equality and distinction in terms of role between men and women. That's what headship is, okay? Now, let me be clear on what male headship does not mean. First, headship does not mean that women are inferior or lesser in any way. In the Genesis story, God makes Eve as Adam's helper. And the Hebrew word for helper is the word easer. You can think of it like someone who eases your burdens, who makes things easier for you, an easer. And lest you think that being an easer is some kind of lesser position, the word easer is used 21 times in the Old Testament. And 16 of those 21 times, the person who is serving as the easer is God himself. And God is helping, he is the easer for us as his people. And God as the easer is certainly not lesser than we are. Quite the opposite of that, right? And the reason the woman is made as an easer is because Adam needed some help. He needed some help. And so the woman comes and she eases things for him. Not as a lesser, but as someone who comes alongside him and helps him. And that's why in verse 7 of our passage today, Paul says that the woman is the glory of man. In other words, woman is kind of like an upgrade. In my prep for the sermon, I read about this little girl who was thinking about this idea, and her dad was telling her about this kind of concept here. And her response, she said, wait, so daddy, so that means that Adam is like God's sloppy copy. Like Adam is God's sloppy copy. Like Adam's the rough draft, and the woman is the finished product. You know, and I'm not going to argue with that. I'm not going to argue with that. Like women are certainly not lesser than men. All right, so second, headship does not make women subservient to men. In Ephesians chapter 5, which you'll see up here, Paul gives clear commands based on male headship to husbands and to wives. To the wives, he says, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So in our marriage, my wife Kinsey, her responsibility is to bring a posture, to display a posture of submission to me as her husband. Okay? That sounds strong. But then Paul turns around and he says to the husbands in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ go about loving the church? What did he do for the church? He died for the church. So Kinsey's responsibility is to submit to me. But my responsibility is to do what? It's to die for her, right? So my responsibility is to die. It's to lay down my life, to lay down my rights, to lay down my desires for her sake. So for this reason, Pastor Tony Evans says this. He says that spiritual headship for the man is not license to do what you want to do, but empowerment to do what you ought to do. 
Spiritual headship for the man is not license to do what you want to do, but empowerment to do what you ought to do, which is lay down your life for your wife. Now, what, what that looks like in practice is going to vary from marriage to marriage. But when you really live that out fully, it is beautiful. Because what ends up happening is that both husband and wife are serving one another. They're giving themselves for the other. And y'all, that's a recipe for a really beautiful marriage. Third, headship does not imply independent decision-making. When Kinsey and I are making a decision, I do not just do whatever I want to do. Rather, we talk about it. I listen to her and she listens to me and we seek to come to a consensus. Now, in the event that we are divided after we discuss and pray about it, I hold the tie-breaking vote as the head. And yet, as the head, I have a responsibility to use that tie-breaking vote in a way that loves and serves my wife like Christ loved and served the church. To do what I believe is best, not just for me, but what I believe is best for her and for us overall. And I'm responsible to God for what I do with that. Now, when Kinsey and I do premarital counseling with engaged couples, we always ask them to read uh, this book that you'll see up here, um, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim and Kathy Keller. If you're a newly married couple or an engaged couple or even a dating couple, I highly recommend checking this book out. It gives a great framework for marriage. And uh, in this book, Kathy Keller gives the best real-life example of this decision-making principle that I've ever seen. Kathy shares that when they, they were making this decision about whether or not to move to New York City, and her husband, Tim, really, really, really wanted to do it. He thought, this is the right move. This is what we should do. And Kathy really, really, really did not want to do it. She did not want to move to New York City. And so they were at this impasse. And the time finally came where they had to make a decision about it. And Tim came to her and he said to her, okay, look, if you don't want to go, if you don't want to do it, if you're not all in on this, then we won't go. We're not going to do it. We're out. And I love the way she responded to him. She responded to him with this line. She said, Oh, no, you don't, you coward. You are not making me bear the weight of this decision. You have to make it. You have to make it. You see, before God as the head, Tim bore the ultimate responsibility of making the decision for his family. And he was responsible to God to make the best decision he could for his wife and his family, but he had to make it. And so again, spiritual headship is not license to do what you want to do, but empowerment to do what you ought to do. Headship does not mean independent decision-making. Fourth, headship does not mean that women cannot lead in the church. At Park, we hold to a biblical position of male eldership, that those who act as the elders in the church in that office of elder are qualified men. We believe the office of elder is reserved only for qualified men. And that modifier qualified is critical. It's not just that men in the church lead all the women in the church. It's that qualified men, that narrow set of qualified men, lead the church. But even with that one office restricted, there remain lots of other spaces within the church where women can and should lead. This passage we're looking at today, it assumes that women are in fact doing so. Like this text that we just read, it is about women who are actively leading and exercising their spiritual gifts within the church. Women are praying and prophesying in the corporate gathering. They're playing important roles in the life of the church. 
And that's consistent with what we see all throughout the Bible. So as a church, we value the voices and contributions of our women. And our women are some of our strongest and most important leaders. Women like Deli Hansen, who leads our deacon ministry. Women like Liesl Ratliff, who's our global team lead. Women like Maddie Hudgens, who leads our children and youth. Like these women and countless other women who lead small groups and serve their neighbors and speak into the decisions that we as elders are making on behalf of the church. These women, are not, in many ways, are like the backbone of the church. They're incredible. And women, we need you. We need your gifts and your abilities and your voices. You are essential to the health and strength of our church community. So hear that today. Headship does not in any way mean that women cannot lead in the church. And finally, headship does not mean that women cannot lead in society. Again, the two clear places where the Bible makes headship actual are the church and the family. That's it. And so this text, can, this text and this principle does not mean that women cannot run for office or be a CEO or work outside the home or lead in a million other ways in our world. Many of you, many of the women here in our congregation, you are really strong leaders in your homes and in your workplaces and in your neighborhoods and in your schools. That work is vital. We need strong, godly women to use their gifts in the world to build the kingdom of God and to serve our neighbors. We need you. And so all of that, that is what headship does, does mean and what headship does not mean. And that's the key concept we see in verse 3. Okay? Now, some people object to all of what I just said by arguing that Paul's teaching here was very culturally situated. Like Paul only said what he said about men and women here because the first century Roman world where he was writing was patriarchal and dominated by men. But I want you to think for a second about where Paul grounds his argument for headship in this passage. Like his argument here has nothing to do with the cultural context and what was current in Corinth in the first century. It has everything to do with the creation order that God put in place from the very beginning. And so this is not a cultural thing. This is a creation thing. Headship is part of God's good and beautiful design from the very beginning of the world. So in verse 3, as Paul is beginning this section of the letter, dealing with corporate worship, he starts by establishing this principle of male headship. Christ is the head of all people. Man is the head of woman. God the Father is head of Christ. And so on both the level of the Trinity and the level of humanity, you see a profound equality. And on both the level of the Trinity and the level of humanity, you see a profound distinction. Equal value, different roles. That's headship, okay? Now, there is a lot left in this text, and we still need to talk about it. So look with me at verse 4. With the principle of headship established, Paul then gives instructions for expressing that principle in public worship. So he says, and you'll see my clarifications on this slide, he says, every man who prays or prophesies with his physical head covered dishonors his spiritual head, which is Christ. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her physical head uncovered dishonors her spiritual head, which would be man. Now, Paul is talking here about clothing and conduct during the actions of prayer and prophesy, prophecy when the church is gathered together. 
Prayer is pretty self-explanatory. Prayer is talking to God. And people get up. You've had people pray up here today. You've seen what that is. Prophecy, we're going to talk about a lot more in the coming weeks. But in short, it's words of encouragement or exhortation for the church. It's not authoritative on the same level that like preaching would be. But it's still a word spoken for the purpose of building up the body of Christ when the church is gathered together. And you can see Paul's basic instruction at the end of verse 6 and the beginning of verse 7. Paul says to the woman, he says, let her, let the woman cover her head. And then he goes on and he says, and a man ought not cover his head. So in short, Paul says that women in the church should pray and prophesy with their heads covered by a hood or a scarf or a veil of some type. And men should pray and prophesy with their heads uncovered. So women are covered and men are uncovered. Women are covered and men are uncovered. Tracking with that? Now why? What's the significance of these head coverings? Well, in our culture today, certain clothing choices send certain messages. So for example, um, I love to play basketball. And when I show up in the gym and I'm playing basketball and we're about to pick teams, if I'm looking around and there's a dude in the gym, and some of you hoopers know where I'm going with this, if there's a dude in the gym who's wearing running shoes, I'm not picking that guy for my team. Because if you show up in the gym and you're wearing running shoes, it sends the message to me that you're not a real hooper. Because a real hooper is going to show up in basketball shoes. Right? So, sorry, I'm not drafting you. Maybe you'll prove me wrong, but clothing choices send certain messages. So what message did head covering send? Historian Kyle Harper has written a book called From Shame to Sin that kind of traces the development of gender and sexuality norms um, in the ancient Roman world based on the influence of of Christianity. And uh, he says this in in, in From Shame to Sin. He says, Roman women in late antiquity were to be marked above all else by pudicitia, which is the Latin word for modesty. And for a mature woman, for an adult woman, to wear her hair unveiled was one of the chief signs of sexual immodesty. So what a head covering communicated culturally was modesty. And uncovered hair communicated the idea of sexual availability. Now in Corinth at the time, it seems like that cultural norm was kind of in flux. It was starting to change. So some women, culturally, were deliberately pushing the boundaries and starting to let their hair out. And some of those women were showing up in church with their hair down. And so what message, when they did that, if a woman walked into church with her hair down, pushing those boundaries, what message was she sending when she did? Whether intentionally or unintentionally, with hair down in the church she would be communicating to all the men in the room that she was sexually available. And that kind of action, if it came from a married woman, for example, would bring a lot of shame on her spiritual head, on her husband. It would be like a married woman today showing up and taking off her wedding ring and saying, hey, look at me, here I am, look at me. It would be sending that same kind of message. And in an honor-shame culture like first century Corinth, that kind of action would certainly make her husband look really bad. It would bring shame upon her husband. And even if a woman wasn't married and she showed up with her hair down in church, that kind of action and the message that it was sending would create a significant distraction during the worship gathering. It caused people to start thinking about that rather than thinking about God. Now similarly, from a cultural standpoint, for a man to cover his head would be equally problematic. 
Because men in first century Corinth didn't wear head coverings. It wasn't a man's thing. Nor, as you see in verse 14, did men wear long hair. Like long hair and head coverings were women's things. And so if a man showed up in worship, either wearing a shawl or having long hair, it would send a message that would contradict God's creation order. It would be a man looking like a woman, which would undermine God's glorious design, which would distract others from worship, and would thereby bring shame rather than honor to Christ, who is the spiritual head over all of us. And so Paul says, in light of all that, women, cover your heads. Men, don't. And also, don't wear long hair. So that's what's going on with head coverings here. Make sense? Now, presumably, all of that was relatively simple to apply for Paul's original readers. But we live in a very different cultural context today. So how does this apply to us? What does all of this mean for us today? J.D. Greer points out that there are two errors you can make with a passage like this. On the one hand, you can over-apply it. So we could take this very literally, and we could stop the service right now, and we could send all the women out to go find some shawls, and we could send all the men who have long hair, um, Andrew, we could send you to find a barber to go get a haircut right now before we come back and we continue worshiping. So we could do that. On the other hand, we could under-apply this passage. We could say that this was only for Corinth in the first century and there's nothing here for us. Like we don't need to do anything differently. This does not apply because it was only for them. Well, I think you know this, but both of those options are missing the point. See, what Paul and other biblical writers often do is they express a universal principle and then they apply it in culturally appropriate ways. I'll give you a different example from the Bible. So in Romans 16, 16, Paul tells the Romans to greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, I've visited a variety of churches in the U.S. and around the world over the years. And in some places, like in Italy, for example, a holy kiss is a very culturally appropriate. So like if I'm in Italy and you walk into a gathering, you might give a bocce, you might on the cheek, you might, might do that little deal, right? A holy kiss. It's a, it's a warm cultural greeting. But if you go to where I grew up in suburban Ohio, like what people do in suburban Ohio is they shake hands. Nice to see you. Nice to meet you. And if I went in to kiss somebody like that in suburban Ohio, I might walk away with a slap on the face because it communicates something different culturally. Personally, I'm all about bro hugs and high fives. Like, you can dap me up. Like, I'm good with that. But the principle of that command that Paul gives to the Romans is to greet each other warmly. Greet each other warmly. And how you express that is going to vary differently based on the cultural context you find yourself in. So universal principle applied in culturally appropriate ways. Now, what makes this challenging here in Rogers Park is that our cultural context is pretty complex. We are a church in a neighborhood filled with cultures from literally all over the world. And we want to be a church where people from all of those varied cultures can feel at home. And so within our church, we need to hold tightly to the universal principles while simultaneously holding lightly to our own cultural norms. We need to hold tightly to the universal principles while holding lightly to the, universal, or to, the, to the cultural norms. And we need to give space within the church for a variety of different cultural expressions. So what is the principle in this passage? One of the key concepts that runs through this passage is this idea of honor. You see the words dishonor and disgrace and shame and glory sprinkled throughout this text. 
And those words point us to the universal principle in this text, which has to do with honor. Honor is the key idea. So above all, we are to honor God. In the hierarchy of heads that Paul mapped out in verse 3, the head of all heads is God himself. And what everyone else does in that hierarchy either honors or dishonors God as the ultimate head. And Paul's concern here is that God would be honored. That what we do in worship and what we do in all of life would bring honor and glory to God and not to us. He is the focus of worship and he is the focus of life. It's not about us, it's about him. And so we honor him. But how do we do that? Well, based on this text, we do that by honoring both God's creation order and honoring our own cultural norms to the degree that they don't violate that order. So God made men and women. He made us both in his image and both in his likeness. He endowed us both with dignity and value and worth. We are equal, and yet we are distinct. Men are not women, and women are not men. And God also placed us in particular cultural contexts where men express masculinity in particular ways, and women express femininity in particular cultural ways. And Paul's instructions here indicate that as God's people, we are to honor God in our gatherings and in all of life by honoring both that good creation order and our culturally specific ways of expressing that order. So to put it really succinctly, in your cultural context, whatever culture you are in, men are to look and act like men and women are to look and act like women. Men are to look and act like men and women are to look and act like women. Now that does not mean that men need to be macho or like football or MMA or cars. Nor does it mean that women have to be into dresses and nail polish and Barbies. This is not an endorsement of cultural stereotypes of masculinity and femininity. But it is an endorsement of the fact that masculinity is distinct from femininity. Men and women are different. And we ought not deliberately blur the lines between them. Now this morning, I'm not going to attempt to prescribe specific fashion choices or actions for you. Instead, what I want to do is to encourage us to become careful students of both our own culture and of the many other cultures around us. We need to know what messages we're sending with our fashion and our conduct. And we need to focus in honoring God with what we wear and with what we do. See, Western culture in general today is obsessed with self-expression and pushing the boundaries of gender and sexuality. But as followers of Christ, we are constrained in a really beautiful and healthy way by God's good design. And we are to honor God by honoring his good creation order and by honoring our cultural norms to the extent they do not violate that order. So I'm going to give you some homework this morning, okay? Your homework today is to reflect on what message your fashion choices and your actions are sending. It's to reflect on what message your fashion choices and your actions are sending, both in church when we gather together and in all of life. And small group leaders, those of you who are leading small groups here, this would be a great conversation to queue up for your small group. What messages are you sending with your fashion choices and your conduct in all of life? So in worship and in all of life, is your aim to honor God? Are you seeking to honor him? Or is your aim to promote or draw attention to yourself? What message are you sending? Men and women are equal. Men and women are different. God's design is good. And so is God himself. 
And we know that most profoundly this morning because of the good news of the gospel. And the good news is that our good God, who is the head of all heads, sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to save us. Jesus was equal to the Father in every way. And yet he voluntarily submitted himself to the authority of his Father. And he entered into the world where he sacrificed himself on our behalf. On the cross, he took not only our sin, but also our shame. He was dishonored and he was disgraced and he died in our place. And because he did, the Father raised him from the grave and gave him the place of greatest honor at the right hand of the throne of glory in heaven. See, Jesus sought with his life to honor God. And as a result, he himself was honored. And today, Jesus sits on that throne, sharing in God's glory for all eternity. And if you are here today, whether you are male or female, whatever culture you come from, whatever sin or shame has characterized your life, today you need to know that honor is available to you. If you will trust in Jesus Christ, what he promises to do is to take your shame and he promises to honor you with everlasting life. And if you will honor him with your life, you too can know that you will bask in glory, giving honor to our great God forever and ever. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, before I close in prayer, I want to remind you that during our final worship song, there's going to be some deacons and elders up here. And if anything that's come up today has caused some stuff inside you, if you need prayer based on any of this, or if you need prayer based on anything going on in your life, I invite you to come forward and receive prayer this morning. Now, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we go before our great God? Father, we thank you for your word. This is a hard passage in a lot of ways. And yet at the very core of it is this heart, this desire to honor you and honor the good design that you've put into the world. And I pray for us, Lord, would we be a people who honor you with our lives, who honor you with everything we do. Would our choices, would our fashion choices and our actions, the things we decide to do day to day, would those things bring honor to you and not shame to you? Would we honor your good creation order? Would we experience the goodness and the beauty and the glory of the way you've made things to work best? So Father, we entrust ourselves to you. We thank you that you are good and we give you honor this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Firstly, thank you so much to Jimmy. You know, Jimmy worked incredibly hard this week in navigating that passage, so I just want to share deep gratitude for Jimmy and working on that um, this week. And I, I don't want to re rehash anything there. I'm very grateful that he took that this week. But um, just in, in, in processing it myself, you know, I think one of the things I see in my own life is that there's this temptation at times to, to take um, what Jimmy shared on there and take meal headship and to almost to use it something for um, my own selfish gain. Um, is this something I can take to see me kind of go forward in, in my career and, and see the things that I want to see happen? Or can, can, I, can I manipulate this for my own gain? And, um, you know, really something I, I process in my own life is how do I not see this as a, as a, as a, a right that I get to gain something, but a, but a responsibility to, to lay myself down um, for my wife, for my kids. Um, and that's just helpful for me, not to see this as a right, but to see it as a responsibility. Um, and so just to ask, 
you know, the man in the room, um, the fathers, the husbands, you know, how, how are you doing? How are you doing with that responsibility of seeing your, 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 your home as a place where your wife, your children can, can, can flourish and grow in their walk with the Lord? How, how are you doing with that responsibility that you have? Um, and then the only other thing I wanted to say as well, um, I just wanted to say to single women that are here in this room that you do not need to wait for a man to flourish in life. You do not need to wait for a man to flourish in your calling and what God's doing in your life. You have been given gifts and abilities. And so if you're here today and you're like, whoa, I'm just, I'm not married yet. <laughs> you know, like you, Christ is for you, with you. Um, I just want you to know that you do not need to wait for a man to flourish in your calling in life. So on that note, I'll just keep talking. I feel very comfortable now after a while. Okay. Oh, thank you, Lord. Um, we're going to pivot now into a time of um, Q&A to answer some of the questions that have come in. And, and as we do that, the first question that we want to ask is a question that we want to ask um, Lindsay and Ruth. We're very grateful for them in our church. There's many women that could be standing up here this morning, but we're very grateful that they're standing up here. And we just want to hear some reflections from their life, from their experiences, and what Jimmy taught on this morning. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask them a question first, and then Jimmy is going to take the lead in asking other questions that have been texted in and then the three of us will chip in to help Jimmy out with some of those answers as we think of anything. So this is the, the, first, the first question. I think it should come up on the screen. I'm going to invite Lindsay to answer first. The question is, what is something in today's teaching that resonated with you and how, and how have you sought to live this out in your own life? Thanks. Well, thank you first for asking and then thank you, Jamie. I know that was really hard, and it's hard for a lot of us to hear, um, but I think that, like you said, God's Word is true, and it's good, and it's relevant, and it's relevant for us today. So I just appreciate preaching through even hard topics. Uh, as a wife, as a woman, as a mom, I consider myself to be a strong woman. I try to live a godly life as a godly, strong woman, and I look at my girls and I want them to be strong. I want them to honor the Lord and also be strong. So um, I loved how you shared that we are equal yet distinct. I believe that. I do believe I'm equal. I believe I'm strong and capable yet also distinct. I love the role of helper. That's, I think, one of my gifts. I love to help people. I was a 911 dispatcher for 13 years because I want to help people. I want to help my kids. I want to help my neighborhood. I want to help in the schools. So I think that uh, that's just that role and that for me is a beautiful thing. Not to say it's uh, easy and I don't have challenges, so, but we do have a perfect example in Christ who also is distinct that while equal to the Father, he did submit to him. So I don't do it perfectly, Jason can attest, <laughs> but that is, that is my goal and I want to honor God in my marriage and as a woman. I appreciate that Jamie pointed out what headship is, but also what headship is not. Headship does not mean that as a woman I'm lesser. It does not mean that as women we're not valuable, that our voices shouldn't be heard, and it doesn't mean uh, that we can't lead in areas. So in my marriage or in our marriage, um, Jason, he often says, if, he, if you've been to one of his weddings, you've maybe heard him say, when you get married, the wife, you don't leave your brain at the altar. And I did not leave my brain at the altar. We've been married 23 years and I have a voice and I use it in our marriage. We make decisions together. Jason seeks my input and we're a team. So I, I do respect him and I also let him know when I think he's in the wrong. Um, 
<clears throat> another one that women as leaders really um, appreciated that. I have benefited from some amazing women leaders in the church and without of the church or with outside of the church. Uh, in my workplace, I have just strong females that lead well, and I have benefited, and God has used these people in my life greatly. So thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Phil, for including us. And I know this is not easy. I just really want to imitate Christ in this and try to honor him uh, as a woman, as a godly, strong woman. Thank you, Lindsay. So, yeah, I mean, super easy question, right? I mean, um, I was just telling the kids what sarcasm is, and that's a really great example. Um, so last night, you know, I was thinking about this, and um, a few thoughts that, you know, just as I was kind of reflecting on biblical womanhood and the headship of man. So the first one, I mean, God's design is beautiful, and it's always beautiful. And I think Jamie's sermon just really pointed that out really well, and I trust in his design. Um, I kind of see God's design all around me, right, in creation, and I had these opportunities, you know, when you have little kids to, like, wonder at, you know, snowflakes and the detail and the beautiful, you know, um, just uh, design of how that works so intricately. Um, you know, the kids told me the other day there's 20,000 different types of bees, and they all have a purpose and a job, and they all work together, and that was God's design. So, you know, as a woman who believes in Scripture to be true, when I come to verses and, and topics like this, I also trust and I believe that, you know, in all areas of life, I can get joy and peace and contentment in believing this to be true, um, that his design for my marriage as a woman um, in biblical, you know, leadership within the church, that that design is true. Now, as Lindsay said, this is not easy right? Um, I think I've yet to meet a woman who can say I've never struggled with submission um, or I've never struggled um, with obedience in this way. This does not come naturally. I feel like if I ever see something in myself that um, goes along with this, I'm like, that was not of me. That was the Holy Spirit living within me to be able to obey. And, you know, this is not um, an easy... Um, one and done thing. We are continually living out obedience in this way. Um, and so really, unfortunately, my next really thought is that we are living it out in an imperfect world. The world is broken and there is sin around us. Um, and we have to remember that God's design is aspirational. We aspire to this, but we are not living in a perfect scenario. Phil is not perfect. I am not perfect. Our marriage is not perfect. The church is not perfect and we get hurt. Um, so I try to think of a couple of stories to illustrate this. Phil's real excited um, about that. Um, and just how we can respond, I think, as women. So the first one, and I mean, these are kind of cringe stories. Did I say that right? Cringe. Cringy? Just cringe. Okay, we talked about that. So um, the first one, I mean... Phil and I have made decisions together about where to live in the world. We have moved, you know, internationally several times, and we lived in China for a while. We came to Chicago. Phil was studying at Moody, and um, I had a little one-year-old summer in tow, and we joined a small group, and uh, someone just jokingly referred to me as a trailing wife, and um, I mean, that was not how I perceived my role or my job. Um, 
or my calling as a woman um, and as, as Phil's wife. And then there was, you know, on another occasion, you know, I was chatting with someone after working for many years um, in the city and serving here. And, you know, I, I felt like this person should have known my name. And they, after the conversation, you know, it was clear that they had no idea who I was. So I think those are just examples of how within the church and in life, we are working within a broken system and example. Um, this, the big point is, does not drive me to d diminish God's beautiful design, which I believe to be true. Um, and rather, it should send us as women and me to Christ. You know, Christ knows my name. He knows my value. He knows my worth. He calls me beautiful daughter. Um, and, you know, we have to continually, again, to remember those disciplines, that this is not a one-and-done thing. We are continually looking to Christ for affirmation, uh, to find worth, value, and appreciation from him. Which, finally, um, you know, my last thought was really, you know, we look at Scripture, and Jamie pointed this out, and we just see all through, from Genesis to Revelation, women have immeasurable worth. Uh, single, married, young, old, whatever season of life. It's just full of examples of women who were honored, esteemed uh, for their place, you know, in the early church and in proclaiming the gospel. Uh, the women, I love Easter because the women were at the cross and at the feet of Jesus when, you know, he passed away. Um, and then they were the first honored to see him, you know, when he rose again. So, I mean, just the honor that the Lord bestowed on us. Um, so, I mean, I just excitement, I think, to end with, like for the women at Rogers Park. Um, what if we encouraged one another, built one another up in our obedience to Christ and, and kind of living out this good design for our lives? So, really great design, broken world, but the opportunity to live counterculturally in this way is really beautiful. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank, thank you guys so much for just being up here today, but also just for what you guys do in the church. We're just very, very grateful for you both. Okay, we're going to go to some questions here. We've got four questions. Our first question that we're going to look at is, how should mothers think about their authority over their sons? When did those sons become men with authority over their mothers? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, we're all, we're all starting responses. You know, your responsibility as parents, as you have kids, like your first responsibility is to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And that's a team effort. That's husband and wife. Like uh, sometimes um, as kids are growing up, like we think of cult culturally for many years, like raising kids was like women's work and the men went off to a job, right? And biblically, like that's just not the picture. It's, it's a, you're, as parents, you're talking about the Lord. You're teaching your children about the Lord. And, and that's husbands and wives both need to play that role in the home from a very early age, very intentionally. They need to model that for the kids. Um, as children are growing up, they're under the authority of their parents, bo both parents. Um, in Ephesians 5, right, or, yeah, Ephesians 5, right after the verse that we looked at today, Paul says, um, children, obey your parents in the Lord. He commands children to obey their parents. Um, one of the Ten Commandments, number uh, six, number five, is honor your father and mother. 
there is a, as children, when you're growing up, there's, there's an obligation, there's a commitment for kids to obey your parents. Like you, you have an obedience obligation. When you reach adulthood and maturity, when you leave the home, that, that obedience changes. Like those of us who are adults here, like we're not obligated to obey our parents, but we still are obligated to honor our parents, to honor them, to respect them. And that's mothers and fathers. And so, you know, like the submission thing or like uh, submitting to the authority of a mother, like that would happen up until adulthood when you leave the nest. But showing honor to your mother, like that continues forever. That continues forever. So that's what I'd say on that. Anything y'all would add? And you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jamie, but I thought in the message it was that this headship is applying to marriage and in the church. Yes. So it doesn't mean as a woman that I am under the submission to every man. No. So even as a son, not under his submission, I should respect and honor yeah. everyone, um, but that it only applies in those yes. situations. Yeah, like you will never, Lindsay will never submit to Dylan, right. for example. Like that, that's not commanded here. <laughs> yeah, Lincoln is very relieved right now. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Next question. If eldership is the only role prohibited to women <coughs> at park, why don't women ever teach on Sundays? Men who are not elders teach on occasion. Yeah, so two things that I'll, I'll share on this, and Phil, maybe if you want to weigh in as well. Um, the first is uh, we have not always been consistent on this position, and so we have been working actually to more consistently live this out. So those who are teaching, at least right now, are all elders in the church. Um, over the last year or so, that's been much more consistently the case. And we're working to act on a more consistent basis based on this. Um, Jason was actually part of a team of people over the last couple of years, if you're curious on this, who drafted a, uh, a very long position paper on the roles of women and men in the church. And so if you're interested in seeing that, you can get that on, uh, Jason can get it to you, you can email him and he can give you access to that. But um, if you want to see more of our kind of like fleshed out position. The other thing I'd say is um, what this office, what, what preaching does on a Sunday is it communicates the authority of the church. Um, culturally, when you see someone getting up on stage, opening the Bible, teaching, it communicates that authority. And so we want to have our elders in this role, we want to have male elders in this role preaching to kind of as, a, as an embodiment of that uh, general expectation and principle. So that's what it's said. Yeah, no, and I would just agree with what, what Jimmy said there. I think very much the way we see it at Park is that this, this role on a Sunday is that space for the elder to really enact that, that, that role of guarding doctrine and leading the church through teaching and that's that's the space that we reserve for that for on Sunday mornings um, I also agree with Jimmy that he's saying that there has been inconsistencies consist, inconsistencies in that and yet that's something that we're seeking to, to work on the other thing I, I know that also what sometimes we see and we see this not so much here at RP but some other churches we also um, for those that maybe are, are in training into becoming a pastor or an elder will sometimes also um, be teaching on a Sunday morning just as they are developed in there um, to be to be an elder yeah. so it's a couple of things that we think through next question headship expressed through church eldership headship expressed through church eldership how can we ensure that women's voices are heard? Are women involved at all in the decision-making that comes from the elders? Are women involved in holding male leaders accountable? How can we ensure that women's voices are heard? 
Yeah, I think, um, well, so rhythms that we have in our church, like every month we have a meeting with kind of all of our church leaders, um, and that would be our female deacon leads, global team leads, some, some of the women that I mentioned today, among others, where it's the elders plus kind of the broader church leaders. So we have that kind of structure in place. We're hearing what's going on. We're getting input. We're sharing, sharing things. Um, that's kind of a formal structure. Informally, we're also in regular, like we seek out the voices of women in our church, even like in prep preparing for this message like we were seeking input from people um you know i think for phil and i in particular like we're regularly talking with our wives about things that are going on and we're, we're trying to have a pulse on what's happening with women in the church in general we know that's a need we value it and we want to hear your voices and so ladies who are, who are in, in our congregation like we want to hear from you if you have feedback if you have input on direction on things that are going on like please speak up we want to hear from you it matters yeah no i would just agree with that we want to be a church that that really listens, empathizes, understands from every person, you know, in the church, male and female. So um, that's just our heart, and we would love to see, see that happening. So please come, um, and we would love to, to listen and, and, and receive input from all of you. Yeah. Oh. Would Jesus likely have worn his hair longer, as typically depicted in our Art. Okay, so I love this question, and I think this is the last one we got because there's a blank slide there. So I love this question. Um, okay, our art, like when we picture Jesus, the main image that most of us think about is a picture, it's kind of like Swedish Jesus, or maybe like Norwegian Jesus. Like he, he's kind of got like flowing blonde hair and he's glowing a little bit. He looks like a Viking minus the beard. And um, that picture comes from the 1940s in America. But art is powerful, and what you see shapes your perception of, like, like when somebody paints a picture, that shapes how you think about this person or this reality. And um, <clears throat> most likely, historically, Jesus did not have long hair. He probably had short hair, because, in part because of what we were reading today, like you see it in the text. Additionally, that image of Jesus in particular portrays him kind of as like a, a European-looking male. Jesus was not a European dude. He was a Middle Eastern man. His complexion was probably a lot closer to like John McGill's than it was to mine, right? So, so um, when we think about Jesus, we need to reframe and actually think about who he would have been historically and contextually, not just the Americanized version of Jesus that we see in that artwork. Great. Thanks, Jimmy. Well, thank you guys so much for bearing with us. I think we've probably gone a little bit long, so thank you for waiting with us. Um, hear these words as you go. And remember, please come up, speak to any of the elders, deacons, any of the women that will be up at the front at the end. Please come and chat with us. But hear these words. May the God of all hope fill you with joy and hope in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abide in hope. Go with Hope Church.